Welcome to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. The hit cast offers a weekly look at Hollywood from a conservative point of view. Sick of media bias infecting Hollywood headlines? Tired of stars insulting your views? Hit has your back. Now, here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to episode 24 of the Hollywood and Toto podcast. This week, we're talking with Mickey White, a redstate.com columnist and a veritable fountain of information on all things pop culture. But before we get to Mickey, I wanted to share a little bit about the, what the media hasn't covered about the Colbert affair. By now, most people know that the late show host Stephen Colbert told a very naughty joke about President Trump and Vladimir Putin. It involved oral sex. That you can do the math from there. When I first heard the joke, I figured, well, there'd be zero outrage. I mean, it's Stephen Colbert. He's one of the most progressive comics in the country. It's President Trump. He is the favorite target of the left and the media. And I was wrong. Turned out the reporters actually were interested in the story, but at least not at first. Initially, there was some coverage. One of the outlets I read took out, uh, used Carl Rove as sort of the way to enter the story. Carl Rove was outraged by what had been said. And basically the piece became a, hey, look at this red meat kind of guy talking about this situation. Made it very partisan, like the only outrage would come from the right, frankly. But then, this I didn't expect. Turns out the joke in question had a whiff of homophobia, or at least some people saw it that way, using oral sex between two men as a negative and that started some outrage wheels rolling. So turns out Stephen Colbert actually did have to address the issue in some capacity on his show. Again, I didn't see that coming. I know the culture pretty well, but hey, it happened. But that particular outrage wasn't too bad. And you know what Stephen Colbert did or didn't do? He didn't apologize. He essentially doubled down. He said, well, you know, maybe I could have used a word or two differently, but you know what? I would do it again. What's more interesting about that particular tale is the one group that was silent throughout, GLAD. Now, that's the organization that really reaches out and tries to protect the LGBT community. If someone says something horrific about the group, if there's legislation being passed, or if a pop culture figure says something pretty darn ugly, usually there's a press release, a blog entry from GLAD, something akin to that to kind of share their outrage. Well, there's nothing here. So it kind of begs the question, why? Well, I think we know why. Stephen Colbert is one of the most progressive comics in the country. He's attacking all the right people, according to people on the left, and Glad is not going to attack him for it. Now, Colbert himself is no dummy. He didn't apologize for a very good reason. He knows the culture. He knows what's happening. And he saw there wasn't a groundswell of media outrage. There were some. It was limited. But it was already dying down by the time he went on TV and gave his sort of quasi-not-so-much apology. And of course, what happens next? Well, the media drops the story. This is over and done with. Perhaps if he says something really outrageous again, they could sort of collect it and remind people of his track record. It's unlikely. It could happen. But I don't think he's going to be going away anytime soon. He's too valuable for the left. And frankly, how many media outlets regurgitate every particular Trump slam he gives out day after day, week after week? Heck, they'd have to go and dig up some new stories if he went away. So that's not happening. Now, if you want a little bit more information about how the media covers for left-of-center comedians, actors, directors, screenwriters, go to HollywoodandToto.com. I did a story about that. It involves the director Joss Whedon, uh, Bill Nye, the so-called science guy, and some other figures you've heard of for sure. 
It also shows the deep, glaring hypocrisy on this issue. So check that out. Let me know what you think. And just know this is the way the culture is right now. It's a glaring double standard, and it's not going to change anytime soon. You're listening to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. My hit tip of the week is a film that nails the life of an improv comic so well, it stings. Don't Think Twice was a labor of love from comedian Mike Birbiglia. It follows an improved group in New York City, pining to hit the big time. In that case, it's about a show which is very much like Saturday Night Live. Of course, it's not named that, but that's clearly the show they're trying to imitate here. And of course, all these different improv comics hope that they can be the next SNL-style superstar. And of course, you know what happens next. You get a lot of fame and fortune, maybe even a few movie deals. Well, the people in this particular improv group have none of that. They don't have a lot of money either. They're broke. They have roommates. They're suffering. But they still think they can make that show and become famous overnight. And when one of their members actually does it and succeeds, well, it's not a happily ever after story. There's a lot of bitterness that's exposed. The film stars Keegan-Michael Key, Jillian Jacobs, and Birbiglia himself. Strong cast, good laughs. I wouldn't say it's a laugh riot by any stretch, but I think it's a pretty good representation of what an improv comedy is like. There's funny stuff here, but I tell you, the stuff that really reminded me or sort of stuck with me is the darker moments, the sort of the pieces of themselves they didn't really want to show, but they couldn't help it all the same. Birbigli isn't pulling any punches here. He clearly loves improv comedy, and I'm sure there's a lot of devotion and affection mixed in here, but I have to say there are moments in this film where I kind of winced while watching it, but it's good stuff. I like that combination between the comedy and the drama. It's very delicately put together. The tone is excellent, and again, there are some laughs here. So best of all, this has been recently added to the Netflix movie lineup, so if you're a subscriber, you can check it out for free. If you hate it, you can you can yell at me at some point, but also you can just stop streaming and check something else out. You know what? I think you're going to enjoy it. Give Don't Think Twice a try. And again, let me know what you think. From CBN Documentaries comes a new film, In Our Hands, The Battle for Jerusalem, the extraordinary true story of the Six-Day War. Our goal is clear, to wipe Israel off the map. For six days in 1967, surrounded by enemies on all sides, Israel stood alone. The time has come. And changed history. To begin a battle of annihilation. In Our Hands, The Battle for Jerusalem. In select movie theaters for a special one-night event, Tuesday, May 23rd. For theaters and tickets, go to inourhands1967.com. Just a quick reminder, you can always find out more about hit guests at the show notes page at hollywoodintoto.com. You can just enter the guest's name in the search bar, or you can add their name after the URL, hollywoodintoto.com slash john hyphen doe. Just follow that formula, and you'll find out more about the guests and how to find them, how to find more information about them online. Now let's get to this week's interview. Mickey White covers the confluence of Hollywood and politics for RedState.com. He also tackles entertainment as part of the Jim and Mickey Show, co-hosted by National Review's Jim Garrity. T-Jams, as they call it online and on the Twitter, is a razor-sharp podcast that focuses on the engaging side of pop culture. You know, there's a lot to talk about here, especially for people on the right. It doesn't always have to be dour and negative. I know I get pretty tough on Hollywood sometimes, but you know what? You also want to enjoy the Hollywood content that's coming our way. There's so much of it. A lot of it's great. And Mickey White does it better than almost anyone. Here's my chat with Mickey White. Well, first of all, you know, I, I wanted to, to begin on a little bit of a biographical note because you're a podcaster. You write for, you know, redstate.com covering pop culture and politics. I think there are a lot of people who would like to do what you do. So 
How did you get to this particular place in your career? <laughs> well, um, it's really interesting in that I started all of this as a Tea Party activist. And this started back, I guess, in 2009 is when I really kind of I, – I, prior to that, I had started my own little blog on um, – on Blogspot, which I think everybody had back then, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> yes, and uh, so I had my own little blog going, and then I got active within the Tea Party movement. And my background is actually in media, um, in advertising, um, radio, television, sales, and so I've you know kind of always had that media background. Um, I've always had the, uh, and I'm going to tell you and your listeners something that not everybody knows, but I did a lot of pageants when I was younger. Oh wow. And so I was always interested in public speaking and kind of getting out there, an attention whore, if you will. <laughs> um, so when the Tea Party thing came about, I was at a point in my career where I was actually on severance from one of my jobs. And I had plenty of time to do the event planning and organizing and things like that. And that's really what kind of kicked it all off for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was very much a, a full-time hobby, if you will. For a while, um, I, again, I've been working a, a day job up until recently um, and doing a lot of this on the side. And when I started doing the podcast specifically, it was because I have an interest in pop culture probably more than I do with politics. However, coming from a conservative standpoint was something that I just didn't see a whole lot of. Yeah, no, it's absolutely um, and true. Certainly not, and certainly not in the podcast realm. And my very good friend, Jim Garrity, um, he and I would have phone conversations about things and just ridiculous topics. And I would find myself laughing and thinking about those conversations post the phone conversation. And it was at that time that I approached him and said, you know what, Jim, why don't we get together with my friend Dave, who is a lifelong producer on air. He actually even owned his own radio stations back in Texas in the day. Um, let's get together with Dave and do something. And that's where T-Jams or the Jim and Mickey show kind of originated. And so we've been doing that once a week now. We're going on two and a half years. And we have well over 200,000 downloads, which is just amazing to me. Um, but we talk about pop culture. And we really don't get very political within the podcast. Um However, because of my online activism and my offline activism, et cetera, I've, I continually find myself drawn back into the world of politics. And so when the opportunity to, to write for Red State came along, it really felt like a nice mesh with what I was already doing mm-hmm. um, and it allows me to continue doing my podcast on the pop culture side. And then when I need my outlet on the political side, I have the opportunity to do that with Red State. And But I will tell your, your listeners that you know, starting up a podcast, anyone can start up a podcast. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, taking the time and energy and effort to put it together. And it's about being consistent. Um, and I would say the same thing about writing for Red State. You know, I've been writing online for a lot of different publications and, of course, on Twitter endlessly <laughs> um, for almost 10 years. And it took me that long to find some place that was willing to pay me <laughs> to do it. So it's not necessarily the easiest career path route, but it is something that if you're passionate about it, there are opportunities out there. Yeah. You mentioned the consistency. Is there any other maybe tips for people who want to kind of maybe follow your path and, and be successful and get paid for it, frankly? 
No, absolutely. Um, I think that one of the things you need to do is establish an online presence. Uh, that consistency is important. As I said, I started out with my own blog um, years ago and wrote whenever, you know, whenever I could almost every day, I think, um, at that point. But it was one of those things where I then went into writing for people that would take submissions. There are a lot of publications out there, as you know, that will take submissions. And if they accept your submission, you could get paid up to $100 per post. Um, as, as a newcomer on a blog site, which is, a, you know, a lot of money for your first post up. And the Federalist is, is one that will pay you for things like that. There are a lot of other sites out that are pay per post. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's important to kind of look, look around at the sites that you read, um, and see what they, what they require as far as submissions and content. And uh, with Red State, one of the things that we offer is that our, our, and, and there are a lot of sites that do this, but we offer a diary section where someone can log in and start writing in their diary. And if it starts to develop into a following or if you start, you know, producing good content, then you have the option of taking that to an editor and saying, look, this is what I'm writing is a, you know, is this something that you need? And I think the most important thing is to actually have some work out there that you can reference to. Yeah. A lot of people say, Oh, I love to write and they talk about it all day long and then they actually don't do it. So Yes, writer's right. <laughs> That's right, exactly. You know, it's funny, uh, on the, a recent podcast, I was thinking back in my own career, and I wanted to be a film critic because I love to be, to watching, I love watching films, I love talking about them, and I never thought about sort of merging that with political conversations. And yet here I am today, and here you are today doing something similar. When did pop culture take this change? When did, when did I mean, I think if you and I were having this discussion 10 years ago, I don't think we'd be talking about Trump and this and that. I think we'd be having a very different conversation. And I, I just think that the things have sort of shifted so dramatically. What, what do you think happened? I mean, as someone who loves pop culture and is kind of immersed in it, what what changed? Um, I think the big change was the Obama era. Uh, and I say that because when Obama came into office, suddenly it became very cool to be interested in politics. And I'd like to think that it's more than the fact that he was just our first black president. But unfortunately, he was our first black president who was also a Democrat and had a lot of celebrity connections. Um, he, you know, there were uh, celebrities have always visited the White House, but it was not until Obama was in office and Michelle was in office that suddenly it was elevated to a level of celebrity. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you had, you know, Jay-Z and Beyonce and people showing up at the Oval Office that you actually cared about. These were not, you know, I think I think in previous administrations, a lot of the quote unquote celebrities that visited, you could tell it was a one off. Yeah. Type deal. Um, Elvis and Nixon, perhaps. Right. Exactly. (laughs) You know, it's it's not something new. It's just that in the Obama administration, they kind of merged that. Um, one of the other things that we have found in the last, you know, probably 10, 15 years is that celebrities have also become much more outspoken on political issues. Whereas it used to be kind of passe for them to say anything. They weren't really encouraged, um, and certainly back in the studio days, they weren't encouraged to step out and speak on political topics. Now, and and it's not necessarily a good thing in my opinion, but we've politicized all the things. And that includes our pop culture. When you're watching a television show and they start making references specifically to current pop cult, 
political culture, I should say, events, suddenly that merge and that blending mm-hmm. becomes much more natural for everybody else as well. Yeah. Do you think that's hurting celebrities? I mean, you think about it, there's so many films in recent years where big, big star is, you know, above the marquee on the poster and then it tanks. Even a Tom Hanks can be in a movie and it's absolutely no guarantee that people are going to go see it just because it's a Tom Hanks movie where I think back in the day, if it's a Cary Grant or a John mm-hmm. Wayne, you were in those seats because that was your star. And I think there are a lot of reasons why that's not the case anymore. But do you think that's part of it that we're that by getting political, they become divisive and then all of a sudden – it's not just Sandra Bullock, and I'm using a bad example because she's not really political, but mm-hmm. it's Sandra Bullock who's an abortion activist or something. I mean, I mean is I, – I guess are I people taking note of that? I think that plays a role. I think it also is important to note the content of some of the films that have been put out. Um, they have certainly moved to uh, – you know, back in the day, the, the film, and we talk about the studio era, but back in the day during, we'll say, World War II even – the movies that came out of Hollywood were supportive of our troops. Mm-hmm. We had hero stories about our troops. At some point during the Bush administration, that shifted. Um, Hollywood started putting out more films that were, yes, they had a political message. Sometimes they had a social message, but a lot of times it was just pushing a specific issue. Mm-hmm. And I think that turns the audience off. I mean, if you look at the the films that do exceptionally well, regardless of bombing, you know, everyone else bombing at the box office, when Guardians of the Galaxy 2 comes out, it's going to crush records because it's a really good film. It's a good franchise. People are excited about seeing the characters and they know they're not going to go in there and get a lecture. They're going to be entertained. And I think that has something to do with it. I mean, I think that there's a combination of things going on that are both playing against the industry. And mm-hmm. one of them is obviously them speaking out on their own terms. One of the things Jim and I actually talked about um, on T-Jams a few weeks ago was that as an actor, your number one gift in life is to become someone else, to disappear into that role, right? That We talk about Tom Hanks, and the reason that he's considered one of the greatest actors of our time is because he's you know blended into the role to where you don't see Tom Hanks. Yeah, I don't even recognize Tom Hardy half the time. He's, he, he's that good a chameleon. Right, and that's what we want from our actors. That's what makes a great actor. If they become an activist and their face becomes associated with an issue, even if it's an issue that you might support, If it's an issue that is divisive, if it's an issue that they've kind of put their stamp on, it makes it almost impossible to then go and sit and watch that actor in a role because you don't see the role you see the activist. Yeah, no, I agree. I think Sean Penn has been a really good example of that. As good as he is, I I talk to many people who are just done with him, and I think his – I don't think he works as often anymore. I think his last bigger film, uh, The Gunman, didn't do well. And that, that's a real issue. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit to the Jim and Mickey show. You've got 100-plus episodes under your belt at this point, and it's about two, two and a half years old. What Does kind of forcing yourself to dig deeper into the conversation, to have sort of Jim as your, your tag team partner, does it change the way you look at pop culture? I mean do you appreciate it more? Do you laugh at it more? Do you, are you saddened by it more? What, what, what is it? How do you kind of emerge from that at this point? I'm probably the only person on the planet who is not saddened by pop culture at this point. <laughs> um, I find it very entertaining because to me, that's what it's supposed to be. Um, as much as people invest in politics, um, I've often said, and people criticize me for this, but I've often said that a lot of what we do in politics is like fantasy football. 
in that we can have conversations, we can talk about it, we can make suggestions, but you never really see the needle move for real. Mm-hmm. Um, and with pop culture, you know going in that your job is not to change things. Um, when we discuss pop culture, one of the things I like to do is I find myself kind of being an explainer if you will, um, of pop culture and what the benefits are. And a lot of times I think as conservatives, people have a tendency to look at something that's coming out of pop culture world, whether it be on E or Entertainment Tonight or what have you, and kind of laugh it off as though it's not important. But the reality is it's it's just as important to that particular industry because that's what we're watching. And I don't think people necessarily grasp that either is that Mm -hmm. what we're really watching is industry news. A lot of it is sold as gossip. Um, but reality is that, you know, a lot of what we see on these shows ends up being a result of and product of the industry itself. A new show coming out, a new song coming out, a new artist appearing, you know, actors and actors involved in different things. And so we're kind of getting a peek into the industry. And if you will know, you know, while there are three to 10 cable networks, depending on how many you count that cover political news throughout the day. Um, What you have on all of your major broadcast channels is a half hour of news followed by an hour at least of pop culture news. Mm -hmm. That's important. That's Mm -hmm. for sure. It leaves a mark. You know, one of the things that you kind of mentioned briefly, and I want to kind of expand it a bit is the way, the reason you do what you do and what I do, what I do is because, if you pick up Entertainment Weekly, it's written from a left-of-center perspective, and sometimes it's not clear and obvious. Other times, it's right in your face. I mean, they they kind of talk about the glories of a woke performer, which is one of my, maybe my least favorite word in, in the language. But, uh, I mean, part of me wants to change that. Part of me wants to kind of wag my finger at them and say, hey, this you know you're, you're ignoring half the country. Why don't you write in a more balanced fashion? And then the other half of me says, well, they should just keep on doing it. It kind of helps me. And helps people right? like you. I, I mean, what's your, what's your sense of that? I mean, do you? I mean, do you want to let them know what's going on, or or or, or should conservatives just sort of make their own niche and sort of exist in that area? I would love to see um, some major publications pick up more conservative leaning writers. I'm not going to lie about yeah, that. Yeah, me too. Um, I would like to see that happen. Having said that, the likelihood is pretty slim at this point. <laughs> what I am happy to see is that those on the right are opening up to having people like yourself and me write for them and write about pop culture from that right perspective because the problem with, you know, you brought up Entertainment Weekly, you pick up a copy, you take it open, you read it, and it's almost always from a left leaning perspective, is that that turns off a lot of the audience. And I find myself a lot of times kind of feeling almost like a liaison between the normals <laughs> and those that are so invested in politics that one mention of Sean Penn will send their head spinning. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I try to explain to people that there are things that we can garnish and take from pop culture that are good, that are fun, that are helpful, that make your life better. And there are things that you can just leave behind and ignore. And I guess that's true in pretty much every step of life. But it's really important when you've got, you know, the entertainment industry and the political industry is basically the two things that are combining. And it used to be back in the day, they used to say that politics was entertainment industry for ugly people. And now apparently they found a way to mesh it. And of course, now that we have Donald Trump in the office, a man who had his own reality TV show for almost 10 years, this is someone who fully 
he he embraces the idea of Hollywood and celebrity, and he loves it. And so, of course, I think there's some on the right who are starting to realize like there's a benefit to that. Uh-huh. But they're still not necessarily open to listening to what's going on, paying attention to it. You're always going to have those people who are always going to ignore, ignore the arts and pop culture world. But it really is art and entertainment. And for me, that's that's what I'm interested in. And, yes, I'm interested in how the politics affect it. But I also, like I said, I kind of want to see myself almost as a liaison to be be the person who can say, look, this is why this is important. This is all you need to know about it. But it's okay to, you know, there there are certain situations that come up. Um, people know, uh, your listeners are about to find out, I'm a fan of the Kardashians. <laughs> and I take a lot of heat for that, <laughs> to say the least. Uh-huh. Um, however, if you look at a family like the Kardashians, they went on the air with a half-hour reality show, very similar to um, Ozzy Osbourne's show. Very similar initially to Gene Simmons show where it was, you know, a semi-famous father with Bruce Jenner being there at the time and this crazy family of girls, you know, running around and doing things. And the half hour show, if people were to ever watch it now, is significantly different than the hour that is produced now. And what they did with that first, you know, several seasons of their half hour show was develop the following. Mm. What they've done since is taken it to a new level of marketing that should impress everyone. They're self-made, I guess you could say. They they are self-made. They're self-promoting, self-made, uh, money-making machines. And I am absolutely fascinated at the way that they have taken their own personal products and pushed them forward through the reality show because that's really what has happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, they've turned the reality show into almost an infomercial. And it's it's an impressive combination of what they do. Because, again, you know, you talk to most people, they'd be like, oh, the Kardashians are famous for being famous. Okay, that's fine. How did they get so rich? <laughs> yeah. And while obviously they were, you know, exceptionally well off uh, prior to even the show coming on the air, what they have been able to do as individuals and as a family, um, it, it's impressive to me because it does show a great deal of business acumen on the part of Chris Jenner and on some of the girls, but specifically on the management and marketing side of it, it impresses me every time I watch it of what they've been able to do. Uh, one of the more recent shows, I think it was last season, everyone went down to Cuba. Now, why did everyone go down to Cuba? Because we were just getting ready, ready to open visitation and relations with Cuba. And what's the easiest way to let the world know that Americans can now go visit Cuba? Send the Kardashians. <laughs> And so it's not just their own marketing now. Yeah. Now other companies, other countries, they do the same thing with Finland. Um, when they do these trips abroad, when they go and visit places, all the little things that they do, it's it's becoming a venue and a vehicle for others to advertise through their popularity as well. Because it's not just going to be covered on the reality show. It's going to be on the cover of E. It's going to be on the cover of People. It's going to be on every single magazine that covers the Kardashians as well. Mickey, if you make me start to watch this show, I may never forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> now you're, see, but now li- you sound like Jim. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the context you're giving to it. Uh, oh, quick, quickly, I want to go uh, looking ahead to the summer movie season. It's about to kick off. And besides the fact that King Arthur is going to flop really badly, do you have any sort of predictions or thoughts about the coming season? Uh, as I said, you know, I, I'm excited about Gardens of the Galaxy. 
uh, too. That, that's one that I am actually legitimately excited about seeing. But I have to tell you, I'm more than disappointed than what's coming out of Hollywood right now. I have seen one too many reboots. I have seen one too many remakes. I'd like to see an original idea. And while they put all of these monies into blockbusters and into epic telling of stories, they're not putting a lot of effort into the original ideas. And that's what I'm looking forward to. There's always some, there's always one movie of the summer that kind of surprises everyone. Maybe one that didn't get all the hype. Yeah. And I guess I'm looking for that movie right now. <laughs> you know, it could be Atomic Blonde, the uh, Charlize Theron movie, which looks interesting. I think it comes out, I think in July. Yes, but, that uh, could yeah, end up being it. It's, it's often the movie you can break that becomes that. But by the way, you know, I really enjoyed the movie The Promise with Christian Bale and Oscar Isaac. And that was sort of an old school epic that's funny because that was the movie I was thinking of when I said that. And it absolutely tanks. So while I, I get your hunger and your disappointment, I think that's the reason why. Because if you're going to reboot something, I mean, God help us all, Baywatch could make some cash this summer. But, oh, Baywatch uh, is going to do very well. Yeah. And I'll probably see it simply because The Rock is in it. <laughs> he is charming. <laughs> but it's not going to be a good movie. No. Like I kind of know that up front going in, so I'm okay with that. That's right. Um, I haven't seen The Promise, but that was exactly the movie I was thinking of because of I'm looking forward to seeing it. Um, but it's one of those movies that, again, I don't feel it has the mass appeal that you're looking for in a story like this. That It felt like it was released a little early for Oscar bait. Yeah, the timing is unfortunate. I would say that for sure. Yeah, and that type of movie you normally see come out during the holidays or in the fall leading into Oscar nominations, and it kind of falls under that category to me. But I don't know that you have people that want to go to a movie theater. I mean, obviously, we still have a lot of theater goers. But when you have a movie like that, that's one of those movies you look at and you're like, well, it's probably about three hours long. I could probably watch that from home. Yeah, yeah. No, There, won't, there aren't going to be spoilers all over the internet for it. Hmm. <laughs> Um, so, you know, there's certain things that I think the audience takes into consideration, you know, Hollywood has, has, and specifically the movie industry has taken a lot of grief about the fact that the ticket prices are so high. It costs so much to go see a movie, but when the movie is good, people still go. Yeah. There's still that magic there. That's for sure. But I think a lot of the really great content, the more serious, more thoughtful, more deliberate content is all over TV. And so why would you leave your house to see The Promise when you can get something that rich and that sort of inviting and just watch well, it? And home? you've got some really great programming coming through HBO right now. They just finished up Big Little Lies, which I absolutely adored. I thought that was exceptionally well done. Um, and again, you're talking about thoughtful content that you can get at home. Then you have Netflix and you have Hulu and you have Amazon Prime. And so there's a lot of different outlets and options. And we probably have more options now than we've ever had before. So that's anytime that you have a saturated, saturated market like that, it's going to affect kind of the larger industry. But I think it'll be interesting over the next several years to see how things shake out between this kind of a la carte content that you can get at home and what we expect to see from Hollywood. We want to see the big blockbusters for them because we expect them to have to have the budget to produce it. Yeah. Now, these smaller, more thoughtful stories can be told on a smaller screen. There you go. And by the way, I think that Groot is actually a bigger movie star than Tom Hanks at this point. I mean, as far as box Baby office. Groot is yeah, the best. He's the best. So, uh, Mickey, before we let you go, and I think we're going to segue from your HBO tip into the last question, which is, what are you watching right now? What's on your nightstand? What are you listening to music-wise? What can you recommend to people? And maybe not the obvious, go see Guardians Volume 2, because I think everyone's going to do that. But just I mean, maybe a little bit off the beaten path you can recommend? 
Um, I, I, I will tell you that I am not the biggest movie goer, so I apologize to your audience for that. I am the person who waits for it to come on <laughs> demand, and I will watch it at home, which probably makes me the worst. Um, however, I'm actually looking forward to um, some of the summer films, as you mentioned, um, but there's a movie that is called Split. Oh, yeah. That is already out, um, and it is available on demand right now. It was one of M. Night Shyamalan's movies, and I found it to be really interesting. Um, I found it to be dark and having just enough twist for me, anyway, um, that I enjoyed it. So I, I definitely would recommend that. Uh, as far as what I'm reading right now, I've got Around the Way Girl, the Taraji Henson mm-hmm. biography. That's what I am reading right now. <laughs> So to give you an idea of what I'm thinking about, <laughs> and I am almost always listening to Rihanna. There you go. All right. Well, Mickey, thank you so much. Of course, you can find out more about Mickey at redstate.com. Check out her podcast, The Jim and Mickey Show, and uh, follow her on Twitter at Biased Girl. And of course, all this information will be on the show notes page as well. Mickey, love you reading your stuff and checking you out on the podcast, and uh, thanks for checking in with Hollywood and Toto. Oh, thank you, Kristen. You have a great day. Thanks. Well, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out HollywoodandToto.com for both the show notes and, of course, the latest entertainment news. Please follow me at Twitter at HollywoodandToto. And we'd love it if you leave a podcast review over at iTunes. See you next week. You know what this is? A commercial? Right. And you know what that means. (gasps) Time for a snack? Wrong. I want you to do some heart-healthy exercise. Yes, you! Try some seated leg extensions right now. Just lift each leg up and extend it straight one at a time, six to eight times. I can do that. Yes, you can. Remember, every commercial is a chance to sneak in heart-healthy activity. Visit findexerciseanywhere.com and speak with your doctor to learn more about the risks of heart failure. Let's make Vision Zero a reality in D.C., Almost half of DC's traffic fatalities come from impaired driving. These deaths are 100% preventable. Don't let impaired driving ruin your holiday. Always have a plan for a sober ride. Never drive impaired. DC police are arresting drunk and drugged drivers. Drive sober or get pulled over. A message from the District Department of Transportation and Metropolitan Police Department.